you'd please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, we continue our morning sermon series through Leviticus, and today we find ourselves in Leviticus chapter 4, and we will be looking this morning at verses 1 through 21. Leviticus 4, verse 1 through 21. Please give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, Then he shall offer for that sin that he has committed, a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of the meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the, front, or that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head its legs, its entrails, and its dung. All the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil." And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them. And they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering 
before the assembly. The grass withers and the flower fades, uh, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you come to the Lord with me in a word of prayer? Oh Lord, we ask now that as we delve into the reality and dark nature of our sin, that you would both bring conviction to us, but that you would lift our eyes upward to see Jesus Christ who is seated at your right hand, victorious over uh, the penalty of sin, which is death, as he reigns everlasting as our great intercessor, as our great high priest uh, before your face as our heavenly father. Uh, Shine the light of Christ within each and every one of our hearts, uh, we pray. Might we leave this place this morning loving our Lord and Savior more than when we first came in. We pray and ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, Today we begin to look at the sin offering. Uh, We will break down the sin offering into uh, really three parts. So uh, beginning today, we're going to kind of have a a little mini three-part sermon within a sermon uh, series. Uh, Today we will look at verse 1 through 21 of chapter 4. Next week we will look at the remainder of chapter 4, verse 22 through 35. And then following that we will look at chapter 5, verses Uh, 1 through 13, which will close off uh, the explanation from God through Moses uh, on the sin offering. Uh, Now recall what we have been saying throughout uh, the study of Leviticus, and that is that the book's primary question uh, that it poses to us, the reader, and to Israel at the time is how can the dwelling place of God, represented by the tabernacle, uh, become the meeting place? place of God? How can the dwelling place of God become the place where God meets with his people and has union and communion with uh, Israel? And the answer that Leviticus is going to show us and that we have seen throughout and that we took specific note of in the introduction is that the means through which the dwelling place becomes the meeting place is through atonement. Uh, It is through blood sacrifice. And I mentioned to you last week that among the sacrifices of Israel, uh, the one that is often most associated uh, with the idea of forgiveness of sins and the idea of atonement uh, is the burnt offering, uh, which we looked at in chapter 1. But right alongside of the burnt offering as that one offering that is most closely associated in the minds of Israel with atonement would be the sin offering. It would be the sin offering. And that will come into clear focus as to why the sin offering along with the burnt offering uh, is so closely tied to forgiveness of sins when we get into chapter 16 in that most important explanation of that most important day of atonement, uh, the day where the high priest, uh, the only day of the year where the high priest was able to go beyond the veil and place the blood of the sacrifice onto the mercy seat, uh, where the mercy seat was laid atop the Ark of the Covenant, where God uh, was seated. So the day of atonement is the day 
where you have both burnt offerings and sin offerings. Those are the two offerings uh, that we will see in chapter 16 on that most important day of atonement. And so God, through Moses, is, is leading us to that most important day, that day of atonement in chapter 16. He is, he is leading us to chapter 16, which we mentioned in our introduction as really the hinge on which Leviticus turns. Uh, after chapter 16, you have chapter 17 to the rest of the book, where it turns to speak of the people of Israel and specific holiness laws for them. But chapter 1 through 15 is leading us to chapter 16, that day of atonement. And he's giving us really sort of the necessary tools that we will need uh, in order to understand that most important day when we come to it in chapter 16, uh, the day of atonement. Uh, think of when you study a language. Uh, we are currently, uh, many in the missions team is studying a language with Miss Heather Rios back there. And uh, by the way, if you ever want to study Spanish, give her a call. She's a fantastic teacher. Um, but we're studying Spanish right now with Miss Heather Rios. And um, she is sort of, she's not doing really what a lot of the language teachers would do because she has to go so quick. But most oftentimes with language teachers, what they'll do is at the beginning, they'll sort of give you the basics. They'll give you the grammar. They'll, they'll sort of give you the basic rules of, of nouns and, and verbs. And, and so as you get deeper and deeper into the language, you'll sort of have those necessary tools, that, that grammar and those basics uh, for when you get deeper into the language so that you can understand as you get into the more hairy uh, details. And that's in many ways what you have God through Moses doing in, in chapter 1 with the burn offering and in chapter 4 and 5 with the sin offering. I, they're really giving us the grammar, uh, the basic rules, the, the tools that we will need uh, to understand that most important uh, day of atonement in Leviticus uh, 16, uh, where uh, the burnt offering and the sin offering will enter really the guts of the sanctuary, will it enter into the veil for the first and only time in the year. Now, I think all of us know here in this room that the reason for atonement is necessary is because of sin. But what does that mean? What does it mean? What does it mean that we are sinners and that atonement is necessary? What does sin entail? And what uh, the explanation of the sin offering really does in chapters 4 through 5 is it gives us a greater understanding of our need for atonement in giving us a greater understanding of sin. It gives us a greater understanding of our need for atonement in giving us a greater understanding of the depths of sin. And that is really going to be our primary focus here this morning, uh, is what the sin offering teaches us about the reality of sin. And I want us to look at three things this morning concerning uh, the reality of sin. First, the nature of sin. Second, the effects of sin. And third, the cure for sin. The nature of sin, the effects of sin, the cure for sin. 
So first, the nature of sin. In verse 2, we are told the types of sins that are being atoned for in chapter 4 are unintentional sins. They are unintentional sins. And we are told that when these sins come to the mind of the sinner, whether they be a priest or a member of the congregation or a leader in Israel or part of the common people, there is to be sacrifice offered for atonement, for forgiveness of these unintentional sins. Really, this word carries with it the idea that these are sins that are done in ignorance of the fact that it is sin that it is breaking God's law at the time it is being committed. And this idea of unintentional sin really speaks volumes to us about the nature of sin. It speaks volumes to us about the nature of sin. Think about it for a second. What are the things that you are apt to do Uh, unintentionally, but the things that come most naturally to you. The thing that first comes to my mind is driving. Have you guys ever driven to a particular destination and you get out of your car and you think for a moment and you, you say, I don't remember how I got here. You think about it and you say, I know there are stop signs. I know there are stop lights. I know I had to turn right and left, but I don't remember doing any of it. Well, why is that? Because driving has become so natural for you. And so it is with sin. We sin so naturally that we so oftentimes have no idea we're doing it. As the old adage goes, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because it is within our nature to sin. We sin because we have a fallen, sinful nature that has been handed down to us from our first representative, our first Adam. It is within our nature to sin. We sin so often unintentionally without even knowing that we have transgressed God's holy law. Think of David's words in Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Who can discern the depths of our sin that come from our sin nature? And take note of the fact that these unintentional sins require sacrifice. These unintentional sins, sins done in ignorance, require sacrifice. In other words, the fact that they were unintentional does not take away the guilt and stain of that sin. It still requires sacrifice for it. Within the world of sin, there is no excuse. Well, I just didn't know what I was doing. 
I didn't realize that it was sinful. Certainly, God won't hold me to account because I had no idea. God will certainly forgive me because I had no idea that I was sinning. No, the sins we commit without even knowing it, God calls us to account on. If I could put it like this, sin doesn't become a problem when I become mindful of it. Sin is the problem. Sin doesn't become a problem when I become mindful of it. Sin is the problem. And by God's grace, he will bring illumination to his children by his spirit of that sin and drive us to the necessary means of atonement, which is now Jesus Christ and his shed blood. But our knowledge of sin is not what creates the chasm between us and God. It is sin that creates the chasm between us and God. Someone has cancer. The fact that that person knows he has cancer or not makes no difference. That cancer is the problem. It is our sin nature that is the problem. It is sin that is so embedded within our makeup that we often do it without even knowing it. The sin offering answers the question from the skeptic or perhaps the universalist that says, well, what about those that have never heard the gospel? What about those that have never heard about repentance or have heard about sin? The skeptic says, certainly the God of the Bible isn't fair. The universalist says, certainly God won't hold them to account, and in the end they'll be saved. But do you see the problem that they are making? They are seeing the chief problem being our subjective knowledge of sin rather than the objective reality of it. The problem isn't what we know. The problem is what we are, sinners. And so we see the sin nature here in the fact that there are unintentional sins And it is sin that creates the chasm. It is not our knowledge of it, and it requires sacrifice. The problem is not what we know. The problem is what we are, sinners. Second, the effects of sin. The effects of sin. When we look at what the priests must do in bringing atonement for the sins of either the priest or the congregation, we get a glimpse of the effects that sin has. We notice in verse 6 and 7 and 17 and 18 that first, the blood of atonement is to be sprinkled before the Lord in front of the veil, and then they are to put the blood on the, the horns of the altar of incense, which was within the tabernacle. Then they are to pour the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. In other words... The cleansing agent of blood is being sprinkled upon the furniture that is within the tabernacle of God, giving off the idea that the sins of either the priest or the congregation makes God's dwelling place unclean. 
The idea that is being brought to Israel is that sin is affecting the sanctuary of God. It is offending. It is polluting God's holy place where he has determined himself to be. We could put it this way. Sin is a God-directed offense. It is not a man nor a self-directed offense. Sin is a God-directed offense. It is not a man nor a self-directed offense. Notice the refrain of the phrase before the Lord. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. You have that constant refrain before the Lord. The effect of sin is that it brings offense to the Lord. Think of David's words in Psalm 51 as he confesses his sin after his sin with Bathsheba. And he says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. And that comes within the context of him committing adultery, committing murder, deception. It comes in the context of him offending a whole lot of people. But it is to God that he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, there are many reasons that we could lay out for that statement from David in Psalm 51, but I think it really boils down to this. Even when David sins against his neighbor, even when we sin against our neighbor, we are not breaking man's law. We are breaking God's law. And we are ultimately, at the end of the day, whether our sin is horizontal against a fellow neighbor or friend or vertical in a closed closet or in a communal aspect, at the end of the day, sin is breaking the law of God against you and you only have I sinned. I wonder how often we say we are sorry to individuals we have wronged and never think to say sorry to the Lord. I know I'm guilty of it. Isn't it true that the guilt of sin is so often most pointed when we see we've hurt someone else and we've done something uh, to someone else that has hurt them and we can't sleep at night until we come and meet that person, and that person forgives us, and we make the necessary reparations. And once that person forgives us, we, we, we feel like we've got a load off our back. But we never give one thought to how we have offended the Lord. We say sorry so often to others, but how seldom do we say sorry to the Lord because it is his law, brothers and sisters, ultimately, that we have broken. It has become rather popular to speak of sin today in purely psychological terms. The thinking goes oftentimes with sin is that it has an adverse effect on my psychological makeup. It has an adverse effect on on our happiness and our health as a whole. And certainly as true as that is, I'm not 
denying the fact that sin has an effect on our psychological makeup. But far and away, the primary effect that the Bible shows us that sin has is not on our psychological makeup. The primary effect of sin that the Bible draws our attention to is that it offends a holy God. The problem with sin is not that it makes me unhappy and a less stable human being. Sin is not a psychological defect or merely a barrier to good, solid relationships. No, it is a moral transgression against a holy God that has made and fashioned us for himself. And it brings an offense to him. It is a God word offense, not a man word or self word offense. It is a God word offense. Sin's definition is not found in the problems it creates between us and our fellow man or between us and our mental stability. No, sin's definition is found in the problem it creates between us and God against you and you only have I sinned. Third and finally, the cure for sin. The cure for sin. We see the cure for sin in verse 11 through 12, where the Lord instructs the priest to take all the leftovers of the bull and and bring it outside the camp to burn it on the ash heap that was made apparently ritually clean. Uh, And this was to take place whenever the priest or the congregation which the priest represented had sinned. However, we'll take note in a few weeks in chapter 6, verse 24 through 30, uh, that there in chapter 6, verse 24 through 30, it indicates that the priest is actually allowed to eat the remains of the sin offering whenever the sin offering is offered from one of the common people. But whenever it is a sin that the priest himself partakes in or the congregation that he represents, he is not allowed to benefit from that sin. He's to burn it outside the camp on the ash heap. The sins of the assembly, the priest who represents really the church of God here, is not to eat of the bull, but take it outside the camp to be burned. And what would have been significant about taking it outside of the camp is that it would have made it a public display. It would have taken it outside of the quarters of the courtyard of the tabernacle and placed it before the public to see. It would have been a public display for all of Israel to see the shame and the sin of the priest or the congregation that he represented. It was for all the public to see the shame and the guilt of the priest and of Israel, the people he represented. And it was the final act of the sin offering that would make atonement for the priest and the people. It was the priest taking upon himself and open before the eyes of the people the shame either of his own sin or the sins of those he interceded for. Hebrews chapter 13, 
verse 11 through 12, the writer says concerning Christ, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. When Jesus Christ is hung on Calvary, he is hanging outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And he is raised up for all the public to see his shame and his guilt. Calvary is the ash heap of Christ. It is the place where he is swallowed up in God's fiery wrath because the shame and iniquity for all to see is placed in public outside the city gates. But one last thing I want us to see the sin offering teaches us about Christ and his cross. And that is that the burning on the ash heap was not only a public display of the shame of the priest, But as we see in verse 13 through 21, it was a public display of the shame of the congregation that the priest represented. So that as the as the remains of the sacrifices burning on the ash heap, it is the public shame of the congregation that is being placed before the eyes of Israel. And so with Christ as our high priest, as he is outside Jerusalem's gates, outside the city gates, on the ash heap of Calvary, unlike with the priests in Leviticus 4, it is not his sins that are being publicly displayed before the public, but it is always and only ours. So that in Christ at Calvary, we have already been publicly exposed as shameful sinners. We have already been publicly exposed as shameful sinners. And so what does that mean? It means that there is no more room for you and me, brothers and sisters, that claim Christ to have any pride, to have any self-righteousness, to have any idea or semblance or idea before the world that we have it all together. But we are always to display ourselves to the world as only sinners that have been saved by grace because we have been publicly displayed in Christ at Calvary as sinners saved by grace. If you are in Christ, if you claim Christ, you have already been publicly humiliated 2,000 years ago on the ash sheep of Calvary. And there, as Christ hangs on the cross, your representative hangs your sins there for all to see that we are saved by grace and grace alone that we are sinners and only sinners that are saved on the ash sheep outside the city gates. Let's pray.
Dear Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to bear our shame, to be publicly displayed as a shameful sinner, not for his sins, but for ours. And so might we, O Lord, walk with not one shred of self-righteousness or pride. For when we do, we contradict the very reality of our sins being exposed at Calvary. We contradict the very Christ we claim. And so we pray, O Father, that you would impress upon us by your Spirit that glorious gospel, that one and only gospel, that we are sinners saved by grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. We pray and we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you please stand for our closing hymn, Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. <clears throat>